Okay, let's grab our Bibles and open it to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. So if you're joining us here, we are busy with a mini-series. Today will be the last of the mini-series about ultimate realities, ultimate realities. And the, the purpose of the New, New Year series was to show us those doctrines of the Bible that should be informing us about ultimate reality, doctrines like heaven, hell, um, the resurrection, and those kind of doctrines. And today we're going to close this series by looking at the doctrine of heaven, the doctrine of heaven. And um, what better passage to look at together than Revelation 21? And we'll read the first eight verses together in Revelation 21. So let's read it together. This is the reading of God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So I want you to imagine with me the following. If you can, this is going to be very hard, but I want you to try. Imagine if you woke up tomorrow morning with perfect energy, without an alarm clock, at exactly the right time. You have zero anxieties, worry, or depression. You feel no pain whatsoever in your body. Imagine you knew that to, tomorrow or today when you woke up, you will commit zero sins today. Nothing. Because your heart would be perfectly holy. Imagine you can leave your keys in your car, your door unlocked, your kids in the street, because there is zero crime. There's whole uh, workforces that are not in existence. There are no police because there are no crime. There, is, there are no doctors because there's nobody who's sick. Imagine going to work and having a perfectly productive day. No hiccups. Nobody's frustrating you. No load shedding. Nothing that that stops you from having a great, great, great day. Imagine if every single person you meet, every single person in their cars, every single person everywhere is a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit and acts in perfect love towards one another. Imagine there is no need for evangelism, no need for missions, because everybody is saved. <laughs> Imagine still that tomorrow you could wake up and you have an appointment with the Lord Jesus himself. 
you can meet him, you have an appointment with him, and you can ask him whatever question you want, anything that's on your heart, anything that you are longing to know about him, about yourself, about whatever, at 10 o'clock at your favorite coffee shop. Beloved, I know that's very hard to do because if we are honest, this is not the life we're living in right now, right? It's, it's much easier to imagine hell than to imagine heaven because if we look at our lives, look at the world, what do we see? Our lives, our world is so broken. Our physical bodies are so broken. People are broken. But what I have just described to you won't even come close to the joy you and I will have forever when Jesus makes all things new. And this is the vision that John sees in Revelation 21, how God, how the Lord Jesus makes everything new. As I've mentioned before in this series, many people criticize us, and sometimes even Christians criticize us, that we are so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good, right? You are just the pie in the sky while there are real issues on earth, real things we need to worry about than thinking about heaven. But I love what another brother said. He said, heaven, the doctrine of heaven is not pie in the sky. It is steak on a plate. Amen, somebody. <laughs> you see, without this hope of heaven, Christians will not be rich in good works. You will not be willing to sacrifice everything if you did not believe that heaven is coming. It gives you endurance to endure your sufferings. Remember, how did Jesus endure the cross? What does Hebrews 12 tell us? For the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. How much more do we need that joy that is set before us to be able to endure this life full of its sufferings, full of its sorrows, full of its disappointments? And Paul actually says this explicitly in Colossians 1. He says, we heard of your faith in Christ, your love for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the hope of heaven fuels faith in Christ and love for the church, love for one another. Now in our text, we'll see a new creation, a new bride, a new reality, and then a final call. That will be our outline. So first, look with me and look at this new creation in verse 1 that we see. Look at verse 1. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The first thing you should notice is this word, then. So the first word in that verse is, then. That means this is now after God has cast the devil, the false prophet, the, the antichrist, the beast, into the lake of fire, and also all those whose names are not written in the book of life. So in this new world that God is making, there are no devils, there are no demons, there are no, what we like to say to our kids, bad guys. There will be no one like that. There's no ruler or government or anything that will be selfish or corrupt. Now, please remember when I say there will be no bad guys that we were part of those people. So don't think those people out there and we are the good guys. No, we are all part of the problem. We are all sinners saved by grace. That's the difference between us and the world. 
Christ redeemed us, a people out of the world, and he gave us a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even now, God is busy forming us, changing us into the image of Christ. But on that day, everything will be new. Have you picked up how many times that word comes up? Look at verse 1. It says, a new heaven, a new earth. Look at verse 2. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem. Look at verse 5 when Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. That's the emphasis of this passage. This will be brand new. But the question is, what is meant by a new heaven and a new earth? What will that be like? So the most important thing you should take away from that is that this will be a literal new heaven and a new earth. It will be this world remade without its faults, without its tragedies, without any tornadoes or anything frustrating. We know that because it's actually quoting, John is quoting a prophecy in Isaiah 65 verse 17. Listen, it says, Isaiah 65 verse 17, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And Peter picks up that in 2 Peter 3.13. He says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter took it literally. So listen, this is one of the most harmful ideas about heaven today. That you and I will be these disembodied spirits floating on clouds and and we will have one long eternal spiritual worship concert. And that's it. Really? Are we just going to sing? Well, I think this world sounds a bit more interesting to me than just floating and singing the whole day. But we are so wrong. We will not be going to heaven. Heaven will be coming to earth. That, did you see that in verse 2? Look at the, the, where the movement is in this verse. It says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming where? It's coming down, out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride. Okay, Look at verse 3 as well. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Do you see where the movement is? It's God coming to earth. It is believers dwelling on earth with God on a new heaven and new earth. We will not be these disembodied spirits. It will be a literal heaven on earth it is not and you should not get this idea that this new heaven and new earth is because god will completely discard or annihilate this earth and this heaven but rather he will remake this earth and this heaven you might get the wrong impression with verse one because verse one says for the first earth had passed away and the first heaven had passed away. That sounds like God takes this earth and he chucks it in the bin and he just starts from scratch. But that would be a mistake because we should read this verse in the light of Romans 8 verse 20. Listen to this. It says, Romans 8 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Think of that imagery of being in childbirth. Now, it's always a dangerous thing for a man to speak about childbirth, but please bear with me, okay? This pain 
will be a temporary pain because of the, what is anticipated. It's anticipated to be to have new life. The groan of a pregnant woman is not that she would be mercy killed or annihilated, but that she would go through a temporary pain to have the baby. Similarly, the creation is in pain right now, longing to receive a renewal, not to be mercy killed by God and then chucked away, but to be remade. Because the text says what? That the creation longs to obtain the freedom of the children, of the glory of the children of God. So when Paul says the first earth and the first heaven, we should also read it in light of verse 4. Just drop down to verse 4. What does this first earth look like? It was, the, it was a world full of tears. He says, death shall be no more. Our world is full of death. There shall not be mourning nor crying, for the former things have passed away. So the first earth, the first heaven is an earth full of death, full of mourning, full of crying. And that earth is done. Nothing like that anymore. And I think the best analogy is that of our own resurrected bodies. Remember, we believe that we, this, this body, this body you see right in front of you, I'll probably have this black stallion, black hair flowing down when I have a glorified body, not this boldness that I have now, but this very body will be raised up from the dead. Now it will be much more glorious than this body because Jesus says we will shine like what? We will shine like the glory of the Son in the kingdom of, 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 of the Father. So this body will be raised, and I believe it will be this earth. It will be the difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly. You see, so it's still the same thing. There's a continuity, but it, it would be different in kind. It would be much more beautiful, much more glorious. If God would have taken this earth and then just chuck it in the bin, I believe the devil would have won a great victory because God originally created man and women to be his kings and queens on this earth, to rule this earth to the glory of God. But, oh, no, they sinned. Okay, I think the best I can do is to grab their souls, take them to heaven, and just destroy everything I've made. No, Jesus didn't just die. To save us from our sins, he died to make all things new, to make the whole world new, to redeem the cosmos. Colossians 1.20 says that. It says, through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus died for the trees. Jesus died for the mountains. Jesus died for the earth as well. There won't just be a new creation, a new heaven and earth. There will also be a new South Africa, a new Table Mountain, a new America, a new Europe, a new Northern Lights, a new Grand Canyon, however that would look like. You will be able to recognize it like, hey, I know that place. I've seen this before, but it's so much more beautiful. So God won't throw away his creation. He will renew his creation. So the beauty of heaven on earth is that you can imagine that. You can, you can have a glimpse of heaven by looking around. Now the impact that should have on you is massive. I love this. One author said transitioning from heaven or transitioning to heaven isn't about moving from a world with material delights to a world of clouds and spiritual vapors. Heaven is a place of cities and gates, peoples and places, food and clothing. It's like earth without sin. 
Beloved, this is how this reality should change the way you think and live. Don't worry if you do not get to fulfill your bucket list. You know, some, some people have this bucket list, and I'm not judging you for having that. But I think many people have a bucket list because of this false idea that this is the only time we get to enjoy the physical earth. So I have to have my bucket list because if I'm dead, oh, I'm just going to be this floating spirit, disembodied soul. So we have to enjoy everything we get now. They actually live according to that proverb, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is the only time we get. So then we will be nuns and monks singing forever. A million times, no. The doctrine of heaven means that you never miss out on anything. Heaven is the biblical antidote to FOMO. Right? You will never miss out on anything because you get to do it forever in a a new heaven, a new earth. I love how Randy Alcorn said it. He said, well, you know, people say you only go around once. So live your life to the fullest. No, you go around twice and the second time lasts forever. The doctrine of heaven on earth changes your attitude towards material things in at least two ways. Okay, now you have to listen. So first, how does this doctrine of a physical heaven on earth change the way we view material things? The first way, it it helps you not to despise earthly pleasures now. As if they are somehow a threat or evil or in competition towards God. And remember, this is the doctrine of demons. In 1 Timothy 4, these people were saying that God forbid marriage, forbid food that God created to be enjoyed. And that's the doctrine of demons. Rather, God created everything to be enjoyed. And how do we sanctify it by prayer? With thanksgiving. That's the key. We enjoy this earth with thanksgiving to God. The problem is not the good creation. The problem is our evil hearts that doesn't want to give thanks to God for everything he gives us. The problem is not money. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. The problem isn't sex. It's sexual immorality. That's the problem. C.S. Lewis said that we should not try and be more spiritual than God. Many Christians do that, right? They, they try to be more spiritual than God because they feel the subtle guilt when they enjoy a great movie, when they enjoy a great food, when they go on that sea holiday, they feel this is just cannot be right for me to enjoy. When they drive a good, high-quality car, they think something is wrong here. No, listen, God is into material things it was his idea what did he say after he made all physical things all physical pleasures what did he say this is very bad right at the remember at the end of genesis 1 when he said that no when he looked at all of these things he said it is very good and all we do is we just say amen that's thanksgiving to god god you are so good we will be spiritual materialists in heaven And we should strive to be that now. We will enjoy and rule a creation to the glory of God. So the first application is heaven should help you not to despise waffles, steak, hikes, mountains, seas, and all these physical things that God gives us. Rejoice. 
But here's the surprising second way the doctrine of heaven should free you from covetousness, greediness, materialism on this side of eternity. How silly, how insane to try and hoard up as much money and you can have and you die and you leave, you get nothing of it. How silly it is to do that when you inherit the world when Jesus comes again. Jesus said that. Remember Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The whole earth is already yours. So I love how Paul says this. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 6, he says, Remember, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. I love the logic of Scripture. Tim Conway made this simple point. How many babies have you seen popping out of the womb with clothes on? How many babies were born with toys in their hands, right, with stuff? It's like, no, no, no baby is born like that. Babies are born naked, and guess what? You should connect the dots. That's how you're going out. You're going out in the same way you came in to the earth. Brothers and sisters, it really is okay if you don't live in your dream house now. That's fine. If you don't get to go on holidays on these, if you can't afford that, that's okay. If you will never be able to see the northern lights, even though that's your, your biggest dream, because one day you will. One day you will have that. John Piper told the story where he walks in the snow and he has to pull up his collar with the, the very cold, and he says, oh, I, I just like, would love to be in that cavern in the mountains, drinking my hot chocolate, reading a good biography. He's like, oh, that's what I want to do. But, And he said the following. He said, I can wait. I can wait. You see, that should be your attitude because that is yours. All of the joy of a physical creation. So the doctrine of heaven helps you not to cling to your possessions as if this is all you have. It helps us to go to the mission fields and die, sacrifice everything so that unreached people groups might hear the gospel and be saved, it helps missionaries never to think that they have wasted their lives by giving it all away that others might come to Christ. I love, listen to this attitude of the early believers when they were suffering, persecuted, their properties were plundered. Listen to their attitude in Hebrews 10, verse 32. It says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So they literally lost their homes on earth and they, they accepted that with joy. Why? Because since they, you knew that you yourselves had a better position and an abiding one, they could lose their homes because they knew they would inherit the earth. They knew that. So the question for you is, do you know that? Or do you live your life on earth with, as if this is the only house you have, this is the only place you'll be in, so you're going to have to make the best of it? No, as one pastor said to John and Susan, and I'm going to steal his quote, he says, we, you and I need to daydream about heaven and let that sink in right daydream about heaven daydream about what it's going to be like 
It should help you not feel guilty about the pleasures of earth, as well as free you not to hoard. Remember where heaven will be. It will be on earth. So that's the new creation. And I promise the next points will be quicker. Okay. That will be the new creation. And there's a lot to think about. But secondly, we also see there will be a new bride. There will be a new bride. Look at verse 2. It says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, you might have, you're listening to me, you're saying there's a new bride, but I'm just seeing a new city, so where is this connection? Now, just as a reminder, we are in Revelation, which is a book full of symbolisms and pictures. And I also want to say that there are many, many um, pastors and theologians that are far smarter than I am that do disagree about what, with what I will now tell you. But what I want to say is, whatever view you have of Revelation, we all agree that Jesus will return, he will raise the dead and judge the dead, and then there will be a literal new heaven and earth and we will be on that forever. So all of us agree on that. That's orthodox. But I do not think John here in verse 2 is literally thinking of a city, a Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And the first clue is the way he describes it. Look at verse 2. How does he describe the city? He says, this is a city coming down prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John picks up that theme in verse 9. Just drop down to verse 9. He says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So recently I was at a wedding with Matthew and Elandri. And imagine if I walked up to you and I said to you, Come, let me show you the bride. Let me show you the wife of Matthew. Who will you expect to see? Ilandri, right? If I, I say, come, let me show you the bride, and then you expect me to show you a person. But what we see in Revelation is that's not, what hap- that's not what's happening. Look at verse 10. So the angel says, come, I'll show you the bride. In verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Isn't that strange? So, come, let me show you the wife of Christ. And then you go and you say, and you see, and he shows you the new Jerusalem. Wait, I thought you were going to show me the wife. Why are you showing me the city now? Well, because John is equating the two. John is saying, listen, the city is the bride. The new Jerusalem is the wife of Christ. Remember, Jerusalem was the special place in which God dwelled, where his special presence was felt, where he was. Now his presence will be in and with his bride, wherever they are, on the earth, the people of God are the city of God. They are the building of God. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God now dwells with them like a husband living and dwelling with his wife. So yes, this, is a lit- this does communicate literal truth. The re- literal truth is there is a bride, there is a wife of Christ, but that is the church, the people made up of every tribe and tongue and nation. That's the literal part, but here is the symbolism. It points us to that. And remember, that's exactly what John does in other sections in Revelation as well. For example, Revelation 5, he says, John hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. And then he turns and he sees a lamb. 
So wait, is it now a lion or is it now a lamb or who is this? No, he's equating the two. The two are the same. And in Revelation 7, he does the same thing. He mentions the 144,000 of every tribe of Israel that are sealed. And then he turns and he sees people from every tribe and tongue and nation because he is equating the two. Do you see? This is not a, a new thing that John is doing. This is a common pattern in the book of Revelation. Now, I might be wrong and I'm willing to change my mind on that, but... This is what I believe John is intending for us to believe. That's our hermeneutic. We allow the author to tell us what he's seeing and how he interprets that. But here's the point of that. There will be a new bride. And this bride will be you and me. And we will be perfect, sinless. Jesus died for us that we would be without spot and wrinkle. And you will never struggle with your sin again. So weary Christian. Suffering one, discouraged of heart. God cannot wait for you to get to heaven. Not unlike a bridegroom cannot wait for his wedding day to arrive. That's the joy that awaits us when we get there. We will be the bride of Christ. Leads us to the third point. There will also be a new reality. So there will be a new reality. Look at verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now that that verse is one of the themes of the entire Bible. You could actually summarize the entire Bible like this. I will be their God and they will be my people. That is what this verse is communicating. But how will this dwelling together look like? Well, verse 4, look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Don't rush from this verse. Let this verse sink into your heart. Every tear you have ever cried on earth. So the tears here really symbolizes every, the sum total of all of your pain, all of your suffering, this side of heaven, this side of eternity, those are the tears that God will wipe away with a single stroke. Simply, his love will so penetrate your heart at that day that it will literally heal you from the inside out. That all the pain you thought was unbearable will turn into paradise. Think of everything that brings you tears. Think of all the physical pain so many people have to endure. Think of the aging and the decaying of our physical bodies. Many of our brothers and sisters, as I am speaking right now, are being beheaded for Christ, are being tortured alive because of their faith in Christ. We often groan like creation for our bodies to be redeemed. We have a brother in our church who is struggling with chronic migraines. We have sisters in our church that has pain in their feet, that struggles to get out of bed every day. But think also, not just of the physical pain, think of the emotional pain, the psychological pain, which is often even worse than physical pains. Think of the intense pain of our sin against God, having a guilty conscience before Him. Think of the pain of standing at a gravesite, the death of a, love, uh, the death of a loved one, a child, a parent, a friend. Think of the pain of loneliness, the pain of depression and anxiety. 
all the tears that you might have cried even as a child. Some of the most horrific things happened to children, perhaps. If you think of just your father, your mother might have passed away. Or you have been abused as a child. And you are still carrying the, the scars of your abuse even today. Those tears, God will wipe away. I mean, we do this act with one another. This is a very personal thing. This is a very intimate thing. My wife is pregnant, so she cries a lot in this season. But it's, it's one of my greatest pleasures to wipe away those tears and say to her, it's okay. It's going to be okay. My son, when he finishes a movie, he immediately bursts out into tears. He cannot take the disappointment that the movie is done, that there is no joy left for him. His life has ended. And I look at him and I, lit, I could wipe away his tears. I say, son, it's okay. There is so much more joy waiting for you. You don't know what is waiting for you. So, beloved, when God does this for you, this will be intensely personal. This will be intensely intimate. His nail-pierced hands wiping away your tear-stained cheeks and saying, it is okay. You are with me now. What balm, what comfort, what healing will just meditating on this one verse give your heart? Sadly, it is not true that, is it not so true that often when we suffer, while we are going through the pain and the suffering, we believe that nothing will ever be able to make it right. No comfort in the future can make up for the present pain that I have right now. But, beloved, that's not true. And one of our favorite verses, we go to this a lot, is 2 Corinthians 4.16. Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed Day by day, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Oh, Paul, you don't know my suffering. How dare you call my suffering light? How dare you say it's light and momentary? I'm carrying this pain every day. Listen, the text didn't say your, your sufferings are just light. It said it is light in comparison to the glory that is going to be revealed. If you take on the one side of the scale, think of the most horrific sufferings you can think about. The Holocaust, children dying of leukemia. Think of rape or torture. And you put all of that on the one side of the scale, whatever else must be on the other side that you can call this light must be heavy. Heavy beyond your imagination. It's like taking a massive boulder and putting on the one side, and you're saying, that's massive. And you look to the other side, and you see the planet Jupiter on the other side. And it just outweighs. Okay, that's like a little, little sandkoroki to that. I love how Lewis, Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, he says, Mortals, human beings, say of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Listen, not knowing that heaven, once obtained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. So heaven will be retroactive. Heaven will go back into your whole past and make all of that pain into glories, into beauties. In heaven, you will see how Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good, was true. Without exception, your upbringing, the parents you had, your siblings, this, your sins, your failures, your education— 
every single thing, you would have seen with perfect clarity that God worked it all for good. Heaven will work backwards. So let us not wait until heaven before we believe that promise. Let's believe Romans 8.28, this side of eternity. God gave it to us now to believe. But notice something with me in the text. So not only will he wipe away every tear, look at what he says in verse 4. The rest, he says, And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. What's the difference now? The, the first one was looking to the past and saying all past suffering will be comforted. But what it says now is there won't never ever even be the possibility of a future suffering. All suffering will be gone. There won't be even the possibility of crying, the possibility of mourning. Now, only the only thing that waits you is ever-increasing joy in the presence of God. That is your destiny if you are a believer in Christ. And Lois, let's close with the final call. Now, this text does give us a final call. When you hear of all this glory, when you hear of all of these treasures, all of these things that's waiting for us, you might say, okay, this is so wonderful. Now, pastor, tell me, how do I get there? What must I do to get that? Can you just tell me the steps? Tell me the process. I'm in. What must I do? Look at verse 6. I love this. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment are you thirsty are you longing for forgiveness of your sins are you longing for heaven christ satisfies that thirst but did you see what you have to pay what do you have to pay to get all of this when in verse 6 it says you get all of that without payment it means you can do nothing to get heaven this is a free gift of god's grace to all those who just come to Christ, to believe in Jesus. Now, it's ironic that God wants to give you his grace as a gift, but our pride demands that we do something. Many people will rather go to hell than to be saved by grace and give all the glory to God. I must do something. I must achieve this. I must earn this. So yes, there is a price to pay. It is to humble yourself. Become like a child that can do nothing for itself, that needs, that's only dependent on God. That's how you must become before you can inherit heaven. Where you say, I need all grace to come from God because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself right now and realize you are too sinful to go to heaven. You are too wicked. Your sins don't just vanish by you doing good works. You have to come to Christ that paid it. So when it says you should take this water without payment, you should really think about you are poor in spirit. A poor person can't pay for things. But what did Jesus say about the poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, we do not get heaven because of all the good deeds we do. We get heaven because God saves us by his grace. Why would God do that? Why would God just forgive us of all our sins, cleanse us, give us eternal life? 
without us doing anything. Why would God ever want to do that? Well, so that he gets all the glory. That's why he would do that. That's why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen. He saved us so that no one can boast. No one can say, well, you're, I'm such an amazing person to get heaven. No, God chose you. God predestined you. God sent his son for you to the praise of his glorious grace. But this text also closes with a final call to the lost in verse 8. So verse 8 says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Notice this is not just people who do these sins or who struggle with these sins. These are people that are characterized by these sins. They are not just committing sexual immorality. They are sexually immoral. They are liars. They are sorcerers. They are idolaters. They are characterized. If you look at their lives, they will show you that this is how they live. They show by their lives they do not love God. They do not love the Bible. They do not submit to King Jesus, and they do whatever they please. Their portion is in hell forever. Because they, these people love their sin too much. They thought that the pleasure they have on earth with their sin will be better than whatever God could offer them. And in that same quote by Lewis, listen to Lewis again. He says, and of some sinful pleasure, people say, let me but have this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of sin. You see, just like heaven works back to comfort our sin, our pain, our suffering, hell is going to work back and contaminate every pleasure you had on earth. Every sinful pleasure that you thought would make you happy would be like, like gravel in your mouth. So listen, sin is not worth it. Let it go. This world is passing away along with its pleasures, along with its desires, the, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, whatever you think can give you pleasure, that it's passing away. So put your faith in Christ. Turn to Christ. Turn away from your sins and turn to Him. So take heart, beloved. Today you are closer to heaven than yesterday. And today you are closer to seeing the one who died for you face to face. And if He is for you, who can be against you? Let's pray. Father, you are the good creator. You have made all things good. You have loved us with an eternal love. And you have not, and you are not going to discard your creation as a mistake. But you have come, you sent your Son to redeem us, our bodies, our souls, physical heavens and earth. And one day you will come and make all things new and we will be your people and you will be um, our God. Oh Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts. May we meditate on these truths deeply as we live our lives in sacrificial love for one another and for your church and for the lost. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.